welcome to Stories from Home, Living the Just Transition, a podcast series by the Climate Justice Alliance that takes us behind the scenes in local communities building sustainable and equitable climate justice solutions in their own backyards. Climate Justice Alliance is a growing member alliance of 70 urban and rural frontline communities, organizations, and supporting networks in the climate justice movement. In Stories from Home, Living the Just Transition, we'll hear from the organizations, creators, and communities spotlighted in Story Snapshots, a new CJA project that draws from local arts, creativity, and culture to express the vision, heart, and day-to-day work of communities building just transitions across the Alliance. I'm Keenan Rhodes with CJA and the Kepper Institute in Indianapolis, and I'll be your host. Today, I had a conversation with Jennifer Falcon from the Indigenous Environmental Network discussing what an Indigenous just transition looks like in her community while diving deep into the creation process of IEN's Story Snapshot Project. Climate Justice Alliance defines just transition as a vision-led, unifying, and place-based set of principles, processes, and practices that build economic and political power to shift from an extractive economy to a regenerative economy. This means approaching production and consumption cycles holistically and waste-free. The transition itself must be just and equitable, redressing past harms and creating new relationships of power for the future through reparations. If the process of transition is not just, the outcome will never be. Just transition describes both where we are going and how we get there. Okay, that sounds inspiring, but what does it really mean? What does Just Transition look like on the ground from day to day? Hello? Hello? Keenan? Hey. Hey, how are you doing today? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. My name is Jennifer K. Falcon. I'm with the Indigenous Environmental Network. I run our communications and Indigenous Rising Media. I am Lakota and Nakota from the Fort Peck and Fort Belknap tribes in uh, northern Montana, about 30 miles from the Canadian border. But right now I call San Antonio home and I am a mother to two daughters. So can you tell me in your own words, when you hear the words just transition, what comes to mind and what does that mean to you? When I hear the words just transition, I think of a different future for my community and my children, uh, a way to move away from the dependency on fossil fuel. And what is the Indigenous Environmental Network for those that might be listening in the future that are unfamiliar with this organization? So actually, In June, Indigenous Environmental Network will be celebrating their 30th uh, year anniversary. And IEN is an alliance of Indigenous people whose mission is to protect the sacredness of Mother Earth from contamination and exploitation by strengthening, maintaining, and respecting Indigenous teachings and natural law. IEN has um, a lot of great campaigns that we're working on. 
We have Indigenous Rising Media, which is something that I put a lot of time into for work. Uh, Indigenous Rising Media is a is IEN's media platform that is a standalone platform that really seeks to uplift uh, Black, Indigenous, and people of color's work around climate justice and really anything that's helping create healthy communities in these systems of white supremacy that we're all forced to live within. Uh, and then we have um, our No KXL program, which we've been fighting for a decade now. Uh, we have our Indigenous Principles of Indigenous Just Transition. Uh, we just had our first Principles of Indigenous Just Transition Assembly at Haskell, where we actually started our story snapshot to highlight the voices who are working on Indigenous Just Transition in their communities. Um, so can you go into what that project is um, and how did it come to be? So Indigenous Environmental Network teamed up with Haskell Indian Nations University, and we had our first Indigenous Just Transition Assembly, which brought Indigenous leaders from all across Turtle Island uh, to Haskell to kind of reclaim this space because Haskell was also a boarding school and has some a lot of trauma for our people. And so I felt that this was a very healing experience for a lot of us and Haskell students uh, getting together for a week and talking about these ideas and what's going on, on in our communities and what we're working on and really learning from each other and learning how to apply the principles of an Indigenous just transition to our communities and how uh, that looks in our communities. So we use this uh, opportunity to bring in Arlo Ironcloud, who's a Lakota artist, to interview some of the indigenous leaders that came to our Indigenous Just Transition Assembly. And while interviewing him, Arlo kind of sketched out uh, what a indigenous just transition looks like to them and then created a larger art piece uh, from each person's story. And they came out really beautiful, uh, and I think a lot of people were excited about them. So we have six pieces in our story snapshot that represent what an Indigenous just transition looks like to uh, these six community leaders. Of all of the ones that were produced, that Arlo produced, um, what were some of them? Or maybe if there was one in particular that stood out to you, um, like which one would that be? Arlo interviewed six leaders with during the story snapshot in Haskell. And I think one of them that really spoke to me was Angeline Cheeks. Uh, painting. Angeline and I are from the same tribe, and she's really doing a lot of work around the KXL and missing and murdered Indigenous women epidemic up home. And so Arlo drew what the world meant or what the world would look like uh, with an Indigenous just transition to Angeline. And it kind of uh, was really powerful because they used these red medicine ties that indigenous people uh, of Oshari Shakoi use in our 
traditions and it just meant a lot to me because it's so many times in my life uh, those red ties that have tobacco in them uh, are tied to some important events and then they have a woman's hand holding the earth surrounded by things that are powerful um, the sim- the Lakota symbol for women uh, we have lightning um, and then buffalo tracks and I thought that was really beautiful <clears throat> And then we also have one by Lorenzo, which just shows like how important it is that we are the keepers of the earth. And I thought that was really beautiful because I wanted to be sure that we had a really diverse voice of indigenous people in this project. And um, Lorenzo is a two-spirited relative who's doing awesome work in uh, the Southwest region of so-called America. So I thought that was really powerful as well. Um, and then one of them was also Boots, who's another two-spirited relative who <clears throat> comes from the Crow Nation in Montana, just outside of Billings. And Crow has been, or Boots has been doing this amazing work at Centerpole, which is serving food to her community. Uh, she, they have their own coffee shop there. They have a thrift shop thrift store for relatives and what's so powerful about this is Boots project um, and land that they have is right in Gary Owen Montana at the bottom of the Little Bighorn Battlefield where so often indigenous people are kind of triggered because when you go through this area Custer is bab- is buried there and there's uh, memorials mourning all the soldiers lost in trying to wipe out indigenous peoples and I think it's just really powerful what Boots is doing there on the bottom of that hill reclaiming that space for our people and using that space as a way to create healthy communities um, for our people she does farming she is trying to create a media hub there. So Centerpole is doing some great work with uh, the, the Crow community and really reclaiming that space that has so much uh, trauma attached to it for us as Indigenous people. So I really encourage everybody to check out uh, Mila Big Hair and the work that Centerpole is doing online. What are some of the unexpected highlights or things that you discovered like in the process of this project um some things you might have learned from community i think it was amazing to see the way everybody views the world but there was a common denominator of our uh of like community and how people and community can heal the world uh and that we have the tools and also, there was a real common denominator with our uh, animal relatives and how important it is to uh, pay attention to them and what they're doing and uh, the impact they have in our lives. But I think the you know community was definitely something that came out in each of the portraits and all of, and really just the whole indigenous just transition assembly indigenous people we have a, a different way of looking at the world i think and it's we've always been raised to look at it from a a we standpoint not an i standpoint always a thinking about our community and what's best for our community and really always considering our family and uh, 
having this accountability to our community as well and wanting to do what's best for all of us and not just one of us. Uh, so what are some challenges um, that came up in this project? Um, and can you tell me like maybe a story or a specific time uh, where you were faced with a challenge in doing this and like how you addressed it or handled it? I think one of the largest challenges was uh, really how time consuming the project was. I had hoped that we would get more art from more leaders, but uh, Arlo ran out, it was running low on time. Uh, so I love the detail he put into everything. And I think in the future, uh, I would probably bring maybe two more artists on so that we could really get a few more voices in there and also a, another perspective of art as well. Um, I think we have the our Protecting Mother Earth conference coming up in June and I'm really playing with that idea of bringing a lot of artists, uh, like three or four artists out to try and capture more voices of our Indigenous leaders because our work is doing, uh, or our work is so important and often it's not in the mainstream narrative. And that's a problem that we constantly have is trying to push through our issues into the mainstream narrative. And I think that this is a really lovely way to uh, uplift our leaders' voices. And I think this being a first, this is the first story snapshot that any of us have ever done. So it, it was definitely a learning curve and uh, maybe things I would have grabbed there was some like interviews with the people who did it or recorded Arlo's interviews in real time. Uh, and but we focused heavily on wanting the, the art to really speak for itself. And, you know, art is interpretive. So we wanted people to also look at this art and see their own community when they're looking at it and not just think of what, you know, Lorenzo or Prairie Rose or Nick think of an indigenous transition, but looking at this art and uh, inspiring them to think about what an indigenous just transition is in their community. So I want to backtrack a little bit um, back to the Story Snapshots project specifically. Um, can you tell me some successes to this project? There are a few that you mentioned already, but just wanted to give you the time to like elaborate on um, the successes of going on through this process. Yeah, I think going through this process, I was really able to create a close bond with Arlo and everybody involved. And I think Arlo definitely was inspired by the stories he heard. Um, and I think it, all the artwork's just very stunning and says so much about uh, these people, especially as I've worked more with them since then and gotten to spend even more time with them. And I just think that uh, the artwork really beautifully represents who they are and their spirit and what they're trying to accomplish for their community and just how amazingly grounded everybody is uh, considering everything uh, that indigenous people are put through in this country and everything in the climate of the country right now uh, and how just beautiful it is everything they're doing in their community with very little recognition and they don't ask for recognition. And 
I just uh, was really inspired by all of them and the work they're doing. What are some ways in which you can bring back um, the learnings from engaging in the Story Snapshot Project um, back to your own community? Well, I think art is just such a powerful form of activism. And I would love to see more art used in a community. I think sometimes we forget about that, but I think art builds and uh, projects like this are thinking outside the box in such a great way to create, you know, stunning visuals for our movements. And uh, it goes beyond words. So I definitely, you know, as I said earlier, want to bring this story snapshot element into our Protecting Mother Earth conference and bring artists in and try to uh, create more artwork um, from these stories. So how did you all decide upon like using visual illustration? Like why this art form um, as like, you know, over um, maybe doing like a video documentary or just audio interviews? Like why um, using Arlen like his visual illustrations for this project? Yeah, I think art kind of, and images. So I think art translates over words and it's so powerful because so often we're working with our indigenous relatives in the South and in the North and language is such a uh, tricky thing for indigenous people. And so I think also we felt that we had, been doing a lot of video updates and we just thought this would be a very powerful new way to tell the story of people and which also allowed people to kind of interpret an indigenous just transition to their own community and think outside the box um, instead of just slapping up a video which we so often do and every other org is doing and it's a very common thing so we thought this would be a really original way to share stories. What is the desired future state you want to see in this world? And how does this project relate to that? I think the desired future we all want is healthy communities. And for Indigenous people, you know, genocide and colonization has really been hard on our communities, uh, especially uh, for some of our communities who are stuck in these food deserts and don't have adequate housing uh, back home in our tribal nations. So for me, I think a great example of what I think of when I think of an, of an indigenous just transition is uh, one of our leaders, Henry Redcloud, who is doing amazing work on the Pine Ridge Reservation or tribal nation. He is he has created this school to teach people how to harness solar power. And he teaches, he uh, brings indigenous leaders out to Pine Ridge and teaches them how to create these solar grids for their own communities. And he is also growing hemp and has figured out a recipe to make these hemp bricks that he's now building homes for uh, families for. And he's really trying to think outside of these systems of white supremacy that we are all forced to live in that really oppress us. And it's 
we're merely surviving in these systems. And Henry's looking at a way of thriving. And what he's doing really is an indigenous just transition because he is creating a system where we are using sustainable materials like the sun and hemp to create a community that isn't dependent on the capitalist economy. And so I think that if we were looking at what a just transition is on a larger scale, uh, Henry has a great idea. uh, And it's really inspirational to think about the work he's doing and, you know, the work Boots is doing and creating uh, communities outside of these systems instead of trying to think from this scarcity mindset that has been forced upon us where, you know, oh, we have to just find any job, even if it's soul sucking and you hate it. You you have to try and fit into these systems that indigenous people never had before, uh, you know, settlers landed here on this continent and has really been pushed on us. And you see the trauma it's really caused in our community communities for generations. So I think it's really powerful to see all these indigenous people creating communities outside of these systems for our people to not just survive, but to thrive and uh, live on the land like our souls and our DNA is so used to. This is Stories from Home, Building the Just Transition, a podcast from the Climate Justice Alliance. And we'll be right back. Thanks for tuning in to Stories from Home, Living the Just Transition, a new podcast series from the Climate Justice Alliance. My name is Austin My Africa, and like Keenan, I'm a youth leader at the Kepper Institute in Indianapolis, a member of the Climate Justice Alliance. We know the importance of storytelling to illuminate the critical climate justice work being done by youth of color here and all around the world. I hope you'll check out our newest video, Frontline Youth Fighting for Climate Justice, that I'm featured in at theclimatejusticealliance.org. If you like what you see, you can also donate there. Thanks. We're back with Jennifer Falcon from the Indigenous Environmental Network. Why is your community home and what makes it home? I think as a displaced Indigenous woman, I try to make wherever I am home. Uh, I have very much been forced to live within these systems and uh, do what I have to do for my children as a single mother often. And that's kind of how I landed in San Antonio. Uh, But I don't really consider it home. I I consider, uh, you know, where my people are and where I go back for ceremony and culture to be home. Uh, But I think. I'm also a part of the community here in San Antonio as well. And I think working together is really community and finding community is really what's home. Um, Having a stake in that community, having accountability in that community, working towards a better future in that community. And a lot of times throughout this interview, you like mentioned um, the very communal mindset and like of thinking always about like, you know, not on the individual level, but in terms of we, um, which I think, especially people that have grown up in, in, um, like, I guess in this worldview and like this Western worldview, everything is very individualized. So how is it that 
um, the work you all do, or even parts of um, indigenous culture that inherently reinforces the idea of community and we? I think bringing our voices into spaces, we always talk about this, um, having a seat at the table. And I always kind of go back and forth because some tables, you can have a seat there, but they'll still never listen to you. You might just be a tokenized vision or version of what they just, of a role they need to fill strategically placed. But I think even just continuing to have these conversations and uh, share the way indigenous people look at the world uh, is so important. And sometimes being in these spaces, we just came back from the UN, the UN's uh, COP25 climate change conference and indigenous people's voices were largely being ignored. And it was amazing to see that the UN who in their own study has said that uh, land managed by indigenous and frontline communities actual, actually has less biodiversity loss. But ignoring indigenous voices, ignoring their own study and research and having oil and gas at the table and allowing them to have a, a larger voice than those who protect our land and our relatives and really understand uh, the balance that's needed uh, to keep Mother Earth healthy. And I saw Indigenous people rise up there, and it was really inspiring to see everybody rising up against uh, carbon markets and offsets, which would create carbon dumping grounds for our Indigenous relatives in the South. And I saw this push and everyone working collectively together. And thanks to that, nobody was able to agree on Article 6. And Indigenous people really made their voices heard and were able to flip uh, some mindsets and had this great change at uh, COP2025. 20, and so we know that now going into COP26 this year, November, that uh, we'll be fighting Article 6 and carbon mechanisms again, but we we go in feeling more empowered because our voices were able to influence these decisions that were being made. Just us showing up and uh, not being afraid to take up space and speak about the truth, because right now we need it so badly as we see climate chaos uh, devastating so many of our communities. And just showing up and taking up that space and talking about our our values is so important. Can you, for those that are not familiar, um, explain what Article 6 is? <laughs> sure. It's pretty complicated. Uh when you just look at it. So I'll try to talk about it from a high level understanding in which I have, because I would say I'm not even an expert on article six, but article article six is part of the Paris agreement. And this is all of the countries who get together at the UN in trying to figure out how to tackle climate uh, change. And we see a lot of terms being used with the Green New Deal and Article 6 talking about carbon neutrality and carbon offsets. And really what these are is a way for, it's a loophole for polluters to be able to keep putting emissions into the air and commodifying land and sky and water. And 
these offsets, the companies can buy offsets and they can maybe clean their smokestack or invest in the community garden as a way to neutralize the pollution they're still putting into the air. Uh, and so the United Nations is selling these false solutions to us as a answer to climate change when they are not, and we don't have time to waste. So carbon markets and uh, Article 6, which contains carbon markets, are really problematic. And it's a form of CO2 colonialism that's uh, really trying to trick everybody to think that this is the answer to climate change, but really it's just another false solution so that polluters can uh, keep up with the status quo. What is the ideal table um, for you, which you are, which indigenous people or people that you all work with, um, where their voices are centered, who all is around the table, what's being eaten, what's being discussed? <laughs> um, I think traditional foods are definitely at the table. Uh, I think indigenous voices are really centered in a respectful way at this table. And it's a diverse mix of black, indigenous, people of color, uh, two-spirit relatives, uh, LGBTQI relatives, definitely well represented on there. Uh, I think it's a table of voices who are historically ignored uh, being able to sit there and speak their truth without worrying about white fragility or white supremacy. It's definitely a round table so that everybody, there's no leader and everybody's looking at one another. And it's definitely not a table that centers or worries too much about these neoliberal systems and white supremacy systems. Uh, but a table that allows black and indigenous and people of color to talk about oppression and how to um, abolish these systems that are killing us and really rebuild a world and future that where we're not just trying to survive, but we're uh, thriving. Um, can you tell me what some of the, when you're talking about traditional foods, what, what uh, are those foods? Uh, fruits and vegetables and, you know, I guess it kind of depends on where the table is. Indigenous Environmental Network, uh, I have had the, the great opportunity of trying a lot of traditional foods whenever we are working with communities and their communities. I have eaten moose meat and salmon with our relatives up in the Arctic. I have had uh, some amazing tea and corn from Ponca. Uh, so I think it would just depend on where that table is and uh, what foods are indigenous to that area and historically have always been there. Can you speak more to like the vulnerability aspect of like, you know, I mean, assuming of course, like you sharing such strong, deep narratives um, and also describing like what a just transition looks like. I'd imagine that there's also um, a lot of vulnerability that went into this project. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I, I think for indigenous people, talking to each other and sharing with each other and sharing knowledge is so common though. And it's really speaks to our resiliency 
And if you think about it, everything we've gone through and how we've been able to maintain these traditional ways and pass them on to each other and share them and really help each other reclaim everything that has been uh, stolen from us. You know, we have the boarding schools and I think especially Angeline as someone who grew up in the reservation versus me, someone whose grandparents relocated during the Relocation Act to Denver. And I grew up in our uh, Indian Center instead of on the reservation, but we traveled home on the summers to the reservation. Uh, But there were some things that I had definitely lost and didn't really know until Angeline and I started talking a lot. And I think Angeline's really taught me a lot about some of the culture that my grandparents lost and didn't pass on to me. So I think that that was really amazing to be able to share that with each other. And we've become really close. And I really am thankful for that bond we have and that sharing of our knowledge so that I'm able to teach those things that were lost uh, and are coming back to me through Angeline to my daughters. And, you know, she's been able to bond with my daughters too and teach them new things that our people have uh, done in our traditional ways and really share that with us. And I think that's so important. And that's what's kept us or what's allowed us to be able to hold on to our tradition. How did you get involved um, with the Indigenous Environmental Network and why did you choose to stay? I really first learned about the Indigenous Environmental Network during Standing Rock. Uh, Dallas Goldtooth was definitely a voice I listened to. And I just remember thinking I really needed to be a part of this. Like every part of me just called me to Standing Rock. Uh, my father's side, my my paternal grandmother has uh, family ties to Standing Rock, the feather earrings. And I just felt that I had to go. So that was when I first learned about IEN and I went to Standing Rock. I was there for two weeks and it was eye opening to me. Uh, It was beautiful and sad at the same time. Uh, That type of um, police uh, surveillance was so new to me. You read about it Uh, You see it on the news, but to experience it was really dehumanizing uh, to have water shot at you in the freezing cold. Uh, I was watching the live feed before I went and I remember watching my cousin on the live feed and she's there uh, very peacefully in prayer singing with uh, my, my niece who was maybe five at the time. And her, also her sons, and that's when they released the dogs on the protectors. And it was so traumatizing. There were just so many aspects of Standing Rock that were beautiful, but also just so dehumanizing to see how uh, our communities could be treated this way and how they had no problem going through our sacred grounds. And so that was when I first noticed Indigenous Environmental Network in Dallas, and uh, I came back and it was hard to adjust to life again after Standing Rock and seeing those things. And I was working as a chief of staff for a city councilwoman. And I just felt so, uh, I, I couldn't slip back into this neoliberal world of worrying about going to banquets. And none of it just felt right after Standing Rock. And uh, 
amazingly, I Dallas and I had reconnected when I finally got the guts to kind of move into immigration work. And again, as an indigenous woman dealing with the white supremacy of a an organization trying to serve people of color, but that was led mostly by a white man and his friends and being a strategically placed person of color so that it looked as if the organization was lifting up uh, women of color when in actuality, I was always the only person of color on these calls with all of these white men talking about how they knew what was best for um, our migrant relatives coming to to coming here and always being silenced when I said, well, how can we have a good strategy when there's those people of color and those migrants are missing from these conversations. I'm the only woman and the only person of color. And so um, Dallas and I kind of met through that work and he told me, why don't you come work for IEN? And I just saw that as a moment um, that I had been looking for ever since Standing Rock to really work with my own community and uh, work towards a just transition away from fossil fuel and all of the hurt it was causing for our communities and for people. Um, And also to still work with on issues that relate to our migration, because I think a lot of people, when we talk about uh, immigration right now, it's such a hard time for people trying to come and seek refuge in America. But climate chaos is also creating these Uh, migration routes that are sending our relatives to seek refuge here because we are creating the pollution that is creating drought and uh, food shortages in their communities, which they are trying to flee. Uh, So I think this just coming with IEN and coming to IEN, I knew when Dallas told me that I had the chance to work with them, it was something I really wanted to do. So I took some time off and uh, I started working with IEN with their Luis La Vie camp as just a volunteer trying to help out some indigenous women in uh, Indian Bayou in Louisiana, trying to fight the tail end of the Dakota Access Pipeline. And I think starting to work with uh, Sharif Waitlin and Ann Whitehat on uh, their issues in Louisiana was really powerful to, to me because they really empowered me. And I felt like I had come full circle and returned to where I needed to be from Standing Rock. Uh, and so that was when I first started working with IEN. Uh, unfortunately, uh, they were energy transfer partners was able to finish, um, the Bayou bridge pipeline, which was the tail end of the Dakota access pipeline. Um, but for a year, Sheree and Anne led this beautiful, powerful movement, uh, that was able to really stop that. And it's there they're still fighting now. And I just was really empowered by them. And they really helped me get this job at IEN. And I I appreciate that that so much. How have you grown personally from engaging in this project? (laughs) I think in a technical way, I grew a lot uh, by, uh, we did create like a video uh, compilation of all of the the art pieces and Arlo talking. And I definitely am not uh, a, a big video producer. So that was challenging, but I also felt good about the end work that I created. Um, and it really helped me uh, feel more confident in my video making and uh, producing a little bit. 
Is there anything that I didn't ask that I should have or that you would like for people to make sure that they walk away from this interview with? I would encourage everybody to check out Indigenous Environmental Network and uh, the work we're doing, especially right now. Um, you know, we have our relatives fighting trans Canada on both sides of the medicine line in uh, so-called Canada and here in so-called America. Uh, we are fighting the KXL pipeline, which is slated to begin construction after this summer after a decade of indigenous people holding it off. And then we have our relatives north of the medicine line, uh, the Wet'suwet'en, who are fighting TransCanada's coastal gas link. And we just saw um, a dozen indigenous youth be arrested last week supporting the hereditary chiefs of Wet'suwet'en. And these are such important uh stories to follow right now and to uh, support because we're definitely going to need our relatives to support us in these uh, fights against trans Canada. From your perspective and all of this uh, process of the story snapshots project, what is one thing that you learned that would be great advice for those that are also seeking to engage with their community and build community? It's important to know that it takes time and conversations about a just transition and decolonization aren't easy to have because we are communities who are dependent on oil and gas so often because these are centered around our communities and often we have to carry the burden of uh the world's uh, dependency on fossil fuels. So I think it's just important to have gentleness with yourself and uh, believe in yourself and keep having these conversations. Sometimes it takes a, a couple conversations with the same person to get them to kind of recognize this from a different viewpoint because we are all in this struggle of white supremacy together. And so we really need to have a gentleness and grace with ourselves as well as others and uh, don't be afraid to lean on other people doing similar work because they're probably feeling the same way that you are and it's just so important to share knowledge and work together thank you so much for taking the time out to talk with me and also to share uh, your story and your experiences and the experiences of the community you worked with um just thank i can't thank you enough i really appreciate it yeah i hope i did okay i was nervous too so <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. Join us next time for a conversation with Micronesia Climate Change Alliance. They'll be sharing their plant-based indigenous cookbook with us and explaining why it's so important to recover ancestral wisdom and ways of being in the fight against climate change. In the meanwhile, if you like what you hear, please share this episode, donate at climatejusticealliance.org and sign up for our newsletter for updates. Also, let us know what you think of the project. You can find all of our contact information, including social media, at climatejusticealliance.org. Story Snapshots is a project by the Climate Justice Alliance. From local to international, from prairies to mountains to island shores, from youth to elders, we work together toward a shared vision for the future.
Stories from Home, Living the Just Transition is produced by Jessica Zhao, Keenan Rhodes, Olivia Burlingame, and Samantha Harvey. Our sound editor is Jennifer Wager. The music is One Fine Day by The Insider and Stuff Will Never Love You Back by Dr. Turtle.